getting married in the future. We're trusting it's serving marrieds, and we're trusting that it's also serving um, even people who have been married but no longer are for whatever reason. And uh, during this series, we've been leaning very heavily on two resources. The first is a book called The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. And uh, the second is a similar series that was done by one of our partner churches in the Advance Network. And last week, over the last couple of weeks, we started off by looking at the promise that marriage is. And that uh, marriage is a promise to commit ourselves to another person, spiritually, emotionally, physically, economically, and uh, how it's a commitment to love someone regardless of how we feel. And that as we give love, then we start to feel love. And then last week we said that, you know what, as human beings we are incapable of loving in that way unless we have some serious help and power from God. And we spoke about the power in marriage and how the secret of marriage is that it's not just about the two of us, but marriage needs to be about the three of us. We need to invite the power of God and the power of Jesus into our relationships. This week we're looking at the purpose of marriage and we'll be tackling two major themes. The first theme is the friendship of marriage and the second theme is the transformation of marriage. The friendship, how marriage is supposed to be designed to be an ever-deepening relationship and the second is the transformation of marriage. It's one of the things God intends is that we are part of... Uh, a marriage is part of his transformation plan for us. So before we dive in, I just want to thank you so much for coming and being here. And uh, I just know that God's going to help us. We're going to start off by looking at our Ephesians 5 passage. And we're going to focus on verses 25 to 31. And we're going to read it in the message translation uh, to keep its meaning fresh in our minds. Here we go. Husbands. If you're a husband in this room, please stand up. If you think that you might someday in the future be a husband, please stand up. Bruno, you're needing some help up there. <laughs> Marriage isn't about that in a couple of weeks, but... Um, I say husbands because this is addressed to husbands, though it has principles that apply to all of us. Husbands, go all out in your love for your wives, exactly as Christ did for the church. A love marked by giving, not getting. Christ's love makes the church whole. His words evoke her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring the best out of her, dressing her in dazzling white silk, radiant with holiness. And that is how husbands ought to love their wives. <laughs> They're really doing themselves a favor since they already won in marriage. My wife is in the front row and she's going, wow, that's either because she sees so much of this in my life, or she thinks, in theory, this must be amazing. But if you want, if you want advice on romance, your, your WhatsApp group and People magazine, or gentlemen GQ are not the places to go. 
This is the real deal right here. No one abuses his own body, does he? No. He feeds and pampers it. That's how Christ treats us, the church, since we are part of his body. And this is why a man leaves father and mother and cherishes his wife. No longer two, they become one flesh. Gentlemen, you may be seated. Let's talk about friendship. The first goal of marriage is that it would be an ever-deepening friendship. That's part of what verse 31 says. to his wife and the two will become one flesh what happened at creation helps you and i understand why this is so so important <clears throat> i need some help from you this morning god created the world in how many days six days or seven but the seventh was the day of rest and uh, he made stuff on great on day one cool stuff and the Lord looked at all that he'd said, and what did he say? He said, and then day two, he said again, you're starting to get the pattern, day three, four, five, six, every single day, he said, can you imagine God has made creation? He made the Rift Valley. He made the Victoria Falls. He made the, uh, the Indian Ocean. He made all these things, and he looked, and it's like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are high-fiving each other and saying, this is good, this is good, this is good, this is good. And then in chapter 2, around verse 15, into this good, in fact, the Bible says, very good creation, God drops a bombshell. In the midst of this good creation, all of a sudden God says, that's not good. What's not good? Genesis chapter 2 verse 18, the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. God made Adam, but it's not good for any human being to be alone. We've been mentioning this series how our vertical relationship with God must be primary. But as human beings, we have such massive emotional capacity that God didn't make us to be satisfied exclusively in our relationship with him. When God looked down and said, it is not good for man to be alone, Adam couldn't talk back to him and say, no, God, I've got you. I've got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that is enough. Although that's the basis of our identity and belonging and security, God created us with a capacity and a need for horizontal relationships. Put differently, every human being has a God-shaped hole that no man can fill and a man-shaped hole that God won't fill. Does that make sense? He made us to need other people. 
That's why in Africa we have the concept of Ubuntu. A person is a person because of other people. And that's one of the reasons why we're so excited at One Tribe about not just meeting on a Sunday and worshiping and connecting with God through music and through his word, but we want to be a church that's relating to one another like a family. And part of the expression of that is um, our life groups you've heard of. We're excited to be announcing that we have a brand new life group launching at, far, at 4.30 this afternoon in uh, the Red Hill suburb of Nairobi. Uh, I hear rumors that it may be the best life group ever, but those are not confirmed. I want to be clear about that. I don't know how true it is, but it's a rumor worth spreading. And uh, in life groups, that's where we're able to connect with one another and relate to one another. And if you're not yet in a life group, I want to encourage you, get into one of the several that we have in the church, or um, talk to us about starting a new one closer to where you are. But each one of us has a man-shaped hole that God won't fill. God made man in, in his own image, Father, Son, and Spirit. Father, Son, Spirit, relating to one another. And uh, he made us similarly to relate to one another. Now, of course, we can experience intimacy and friendship in a whole host of human relationships. But there's a special kind of intimacy that can be experienced in the marriage relationship. When the Bible talks about man and woman, it says that God made uh, Adam and Eve, he's, the Bible says they were naked and they were not ashamed. Now, when the Bible talks about naked people, it probably includes aspects of our sexuality but here it's talking about something so much broader. It's talking about in our relationships an openness and transparency and vulnerability. It talks about having in marriage and in this friendship a nothing to hideness, a personal emotion and emotional intimacy and closeness. Adam doesn't just get a sexual partner, he gets a friend. In Song of, Song of Solomon 5 verse 16, the female speaker exclaims, This is my lover, this is my friend. Let's talk about friendship for a little bit more. Studies show that one of the biggest predictors of marital success is having a strong friendship at the foundation of your relationship with your spouse. Fun, teamwork, trust, communication, loyalty, and laughter are all the building blocks of a great friendship and therefore a great marriage. But you've got to understand that, I'm speaking broadly here, men and women tend to bond differently. If I can please have uh, Bruno up together with Megan, you're looking so happy there. Come on over this way. Is Timo around or is he with the kids? He's outside. Okay. Fantastic. Okay, you go stand there. Here we go. Yeah. Such fun. Okay, get a married couple up. Uh, Simba Muthewu, come on up. You've been working out there, man. It's bigger than last week. Seeing that. All right. All this to say, Muthewa, please come stand over here. Guys and girls tend to bond differently. 
Guys tend to bond shoulder to shoulder. Can you guys stand shoulder to shoulder? Guys tend to bond best, generally speaking, guys tend to bond better when they are doing something like uh, killing a goat or um, fixing a car, watching soccer. When there's something to do, guys tend to bond in the context of that doing. Girls, on the other hand, generally speaking, tend to bond great face to face. Can you stand face to face? Because they tend to be better looking, they don't mind looking at each other, and that's a helpful start. But they do great just over coffee, having a chat on the patio. They can bond like that. That, that. that works. That's fantastic. Take one step that way, please, Megan, and Bruno one step that way. Part of the challenge and the joy of marriage is come this way, Simba, come this way, Matthew. Part of the joy and challenge of marriage is that when these two come together now, he still often bonds best shoulder to shoulder and she still often bonds best face to face. And that's why, generally speaking, one of the things that men need to learn to do is to do some face-to-face -face time. That means to sit down and talk and actually communicate. It means even, uh, no, no talking during the sermon, it's not allowed. It means, it means actually communicating and coming, coming home and being able to talk in more than monosyllabic utterances. It's a discipline and it's work. And ladies, part of the joy and challenge is to learn to find some things that you can do shoulder to shoulder with your partner. A sport or something like that. And as you meet halfway, so to speak, the friendship grows and blossoms. Can we give our four models a hand? Thank you so much. Your husband and your wife, your husband or your wife, should be your best friend. How are you doing? Of course, your spouse is more than your best friend, but they should, certainly shouldn't be any less than that. And your friendship should be ever deepening and growing. Do whatever you can to cultivate that sense of fun and usness. The verse in Song of Songs 5.16 says, This is my lover, this is my friend. We've looked at the friend bit, but we can say something briefly about the lover. Marriage is the true friends with benefits. This is the friendship where we add the potent element of sexual intimacy. Now, you'll be disappointed to hear that we won't be covering sex in marriage as part of this series. Maybe next year. But because it is important, I'll just say three very quick things. The first is a quote from um, a man now late called Simon Pettit. His advice was this, cultivate a great sex life with your spouse. That's uh, just under that, kind of under that subheading. Uh, a friend of mine, his name is Rigby. He, um, 
he's in his 60s, I think, and um, he's got a great marriage. And he said that uh, some time ago, he and his wife, Sue, he said, we, we made a decision not to settle for an average marriage, but to go for a great marriage. Have you made that decision? Maybe if you're not even married yet, have, have you made that decision that you're willing to do the work it takes when you get married to not settle for an average marriage? Cultivate a great sex life with your spouse. The second is a quote from another pastor. He kind of, kind of expands on what a great sex life is. He says, sex in marriage should be frequent and should be fun. And all the men said, Amen. And all the women said, Amen. Those two items are great advice for any marriage and will take time, money, and sacrifice. Lastly, I want to refer you to a couple of books um, on this subject, this important subject. Uh, one's called The Act of Marriage, and the other is called Intended for Pleasure. And uh, you can get those, I'm sure, online and at a lot of Christian bookstores. So all forms of love are necessary and none are to be ignored. But all of us find some forms of love more emotionally valuable to us. They are a language that we find more precious, that delivers the message of love to our hearts with the most power. Some types of love are more thrilling and fulfilling to us when we receive them. Why is this important? Often, love is being sent in a marriage, but it's not being received. Two helpful analogies. One is... There's no punchline there, Tess. One is... A radio, a radio antenna can be sending a signal at one frequency, but if it's not, if the receiver isn't set to that frequency, then there's no transmission taking place. Does that make sense? Kind of-ish. Another example is the currency in Mozambique is the metikaish, cash, cash. Now, Brian's just been there recently, and if he walks down the street of Maputo with a word of Metikash saying, who'd like this, who'd like this, there would be a stampede for that. Because that's a currency that works in Mozambique. But if you walk into Nakumat, or better example, carrier four, <laughs> and you wave some Metikash at the till operator, they're going to look at you like you're from another planet. Because although there is value in what you have, it's not what they're willing to receive. Does that make sense? And so there's this concept of the, uh, the five love languages. And uh, that's what we want to get into your hands. There's a fun questionnaire. It's about 25 questions that you can do and go through and find out what your love language is. It is such fun. And uh, you can do it with your friends if you like. You can do it in the workplace. You can uh, take it in on your phone and say, hey guys, this is what we're talking about in church this Sunday. It's really cool. 
And uh, there's one for, one for marrieds and one for singles. And we'll send those, both, of, both of those to you on WhatsApp. And uh, you can get into that and um, it'll improve your relationships, all your friendships and your marriage um, as well. And there are five love languages. I can't remember them off the top of my head. One is acts of service. The other is quality time. The other is, um, is physical touch. One is gift giving. And the last is words of affirmation. Thank you so much for telling, telling me that, Sean. I really appreciate it. And you. <laughs> I say that sincerely. That's from a book by a guy called Gary Chapman called The Five Love Languages. And Gary Chapman says this. If our spouse has learned to speak our primary love language, our need for love will continue to be satisfied. If, on the other hand, he or she does not speak our love language, our tank will slowly drain and we will no longer feel loved. Our emotional love tank needs to continue to be filled. So marriage is about friendship, and friendships can be either healthy or harmful. Dr. John Gottman, a psychologist at the University of Washington, studied more than 2,000 married couples over two decades. He discovered patterns about how partners relate to each other, which can be used to predict with 94% accuracy which marriages would succeed and which would fail. He specifically looked at how couples dealt with conflict. Gottman found that couples can inflict one of four deadly wounds on each other. As I briefly go through them, take a moment to think through whether these are common conflict tactics for you, regardless of whether you're married or not. First tactic is criticism. This is attacking the other person's personality or character, usually with the intent of making them feel they are in the wrong. Often the person who criticizes will use generalizations. For example, you always, or you never, or you're the type of person who dot, dot, dot. I know none of you would ever do this. I'm talking about the person next to you. The second one is contempt. Contempt is attacking the other person's sense of self by insulting or belittling them. Common behaviors here are insults or name-calling, hostile humor, sarcasm or mockery, negative body language such as sneering, rolling your eyes, or giggling while your husband is preaching. I say that in jest. <laughs> or a disrespectful tone of voice. Number three, how's this? Defensiveness. This is when you see yourself as the victim warding off a perceived attack. Often this is a refusal to admit what you did wrong and excusing it. You might make excuses like, it's not my fault or I didn't. Or you could cross-complain. Cross-complaining is where you meet your partner's complaint or criticism with a complaint of your own, ignoring what your partner said. You could also be guilty of yes butting. That's where you start off agreeing, but you end up disagreeing. You know what the word but means, don't you? 
It's kind of like Sean brought that fantastic, it was so great having so many scriptures in worship this morning. Truth does us good. And Sean brought this scripture saying, um, you know what, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, but God. And it's that but that changes everything. And what it means is, look, this may be true, but what is coming afterwards is of such massive significance that it's that that deserves our attention and not so much that. So you were dead in your transgressions, yes, terrible, but God, who is rich in mercy, he made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions, while we do the same in our conflict management. Yes, I may have called you names, but you called me worse names, and it's that that we need to focus on. It's cross-complaining. Not good for a relationship. Last of the four is stonewalling. This is withdrawing from the relationship as a way to avoid conflict. You might think that you're being neutral, but stonewalling conveys disapproval, icy distance, separation, disconnection, or smugness. Tactics here are stony silence, monosyllabic mutterings, changing the subject, Removing yourself physically of interest is that men are responsible for a full 85% of stonewalling. Moving on to our next big section, Gary Chapman, who wrote The Five Love Languages, describes two phases of a relationship. The first phase, we've kind of touched on this before, you can call the in love phase. This lasts anywhere from several months to two years. It's the infatuation phase in which your beloved is pretty much perfect in every aspect that matters. You have strong feelings for each other and so you get married. The in love phase comes to end as your partner's flaws become more and more real to you. Also, you are no longer on your own best behavior. You become more and more familiar with each other and your natural instincts start taking over. It's like when you got married, you saw the gold in your partner, but now you're starting to see all their impurities. And at about the same time, they are starting to see all of your impurities. Things that seemed minor now C major. Welcome to the second stage, the disillusionment stage. This happens because marriage gives you a front row view of your partner's sins, faults, and weaknesses. Tim Keller, the author of The Meaning of Marriage, puts it this way. He said, the one person in the whole world who holds your heart in his or her hand, whose approval you most long for and need, is the one who is hurt most deeply by your sins, hurt more deeply by your sins than anyone else on the planet. Marriage shows you a realistic, unflattering picture of who you are and then takes you by the scruff of the neck and forces you to pay attention to it. When this happens, you need to make a decision. You can do one of several things. Number one, you can run. You can tell yourself you made a bad choice and that you failed to find someone truly compatible. Or number two, you can fight. 
You can blame the other person and focus on their faults. Or number three, you can withdraw. You can find someone else. But the problem with that is that you'll soon find that they also have faults. Or there's another option found in our Bible passage here. And if you like, you can call it the transformation option. Our Bible passage says in verse 25 to 26, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. Going back to our message paraphrase, it says, Christ's love makes the church whole. Ladies, can you imagine being in a relationship that makes you whole? Yes, no? His words evoke her beauty. Can some of the ladies just go, hmm? Everything he does and says is designed to bring the best out of her, dressing her in dazzling white silk, radiant with holiness. And that is how husbands ought to love their wives. Marriage is designed to bring the best out of us. It's designed to make us the person God made us to become. Hallelujah for transforming marriage. So, at the moment that we realize that our partner is more flawed than we ever imagined, and we're dealing with his or her weaknesses and imperfections, on a daily basis, we can choose a different response. A response that says, I see who God is making you and it excites me. I want to be a part of that. I want to partner with you and God on this journey. At the moment, it's unclear. I can see a lot of things wrong, but I know there is someone better. God is making you into something amazing and I want to be a part of that. I love you and I'm committed. So singles, when you're looking for a marriage partner, you are not looking for perfection. You're looking for potential greatness. You want to get a glimpse of the person God is creating and say, yes, I want to be a part of that. I want to help you become all that God made you to be. Some of you will have heard of the great artist Michelangelo. Michelangelo carved a beautiful marble statue that is now known simply as David. The story is told of how he was asked how he created the David. And Michelangelo replied, I looked inside the marble and just took away the bits that weren't David. Kathy Keller, Timothy Keller's wife, says how most people, when they're looking for a spouse, are looking for a finished statue when they should be looking for a wonderful block of marble. Because this is such an important concept and such a powerful concept, just before we close, I want to bring three different scriptures to bear upon this one concept. 
The first is from our main passage that talks about to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. That's what happens in the, in the marriage relationship. And the men have a particular responsibility for this, but it goes both ways. Now, what do you think of when you think of making her holy, cleansing her, washing with water through the word? If you are picturing a bubble bath, you've got the wrong picture. When the Bible talks about washing with water through the word, firstly, it's an intimate thing. You take your clothes off, there's a vulnerability. Secondly, some of you know what cleansing involves. Whether it's your three-year-old's nose or your one-year-old's nappies, when you Married, is this a better microphone? Before you get married, you are excreting everywhere and in the workplace and with your friends, and maybe no one confronts you. But in marriage, in the intimacy and vulnerability of the marriage relationship, we clean one another up. Marriage is an opportunity to address certain issues. The second scripture is Proverbs 27, 17. Well-known scripture, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Iron sharpening iron is a great picture for what making each other holy looks like. It involves some sparks and some friction. But that's what makes it exciting and effective. Listen to me. Every time that you run from a conflict in your marriage or in church life, you're running from an opportunity to be sharpened by God. The final scripture is Ephesians 4 verse 15. Speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. Put slightly differently, it's speak the truth in love and with the power of grace. John Stott said that truth without love is harsh and love without truth is weak. It's mushy. But truth with love makes us more like Jesus. Give your spouse permission to speak the truth to you about your weaknesses and blind spots, even if it hurts. Give permission verbally. Whenever you're speaking truth, double check that it's in love so there's power in truth and power in love because you know your partner like no one else you have the opportunity to love them like no one else a positive assessment by your spouse has ultimate credibility if a stranger comes up to you maybe someone that you've never met over Mandazi in a few moments if a stranger comes up and says you're one of the kindest people I know you might feel complimented and pleased, but how deeply will that sink in? Not far, because part of you will say, well, that's a nice thing to say, but if you really knew me, 
you wouldn't say that at all. But if your spouse, after years of living with you and watching you in action, says, you're one of the kindest people I know, that goes in. You're going to believe it. Why? Because your partner knows you better than anyone else. I've said it before, but it bears repeating. Tim Keller said, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved, while it's a lot like being loved by God, it's the thing that we need more than anything else. So team, grace is such an important part of this process. But I want to submit to you that as human beings, you and I are not able to generate grace in our lives. We can only reflect grace that we've received from God. And if we're, if we're living in the awareness of a God who knows us better than anyone else, yet who still loves us and displays commitment to us like no one else, if we're living in the awareness of that, then it is so much easier to bring that into every single one of our relationships. What's the purpose of marriage? It's friendship and it's transformation. We've spoken about friendship. And singles, by the way, this changes the way that you look for a marriage partner. I know what you're looking for. I was single once. You're looking for someone hot and you find a group of hot people and then in there you look and say, okay, maybe if there's someone who will actually go out with me, then we've got a match. But when you understand that the purpose of marriage is friendship, what you do is you find a group of friends and then out of that group of friends see where God may be giving a romance element as well. And that's your starting point. And as you and I allow God's relationship in our lives, this is why a relationship with God is so essential, as that transforms us from the inside out, we're then empowered to see the best in one another, to believe the best in our relationships, and to be a part of God making each one of us into something amazing. Let me pray for us. God, I pray for those who are here this morning who have not yet understood your incredible love for us, how so unconditionally you know us and you know the worst parts of us, but still you love us to the stars. God, for people who've never received that love or for people for whom the awareness of that love has grown a little bit cold, God, we just ask for your transforming power to sweep into this room right now. God, we pray for singles who've been listening in this last few weeks that you be putting powerful truths and building blocks that affect all their relationships now. and that are a, a good investment that pays many dividends for those who will one day be married. And God, we keep on lifting up one tribe marriages to you and Nairobi marriages to you, and we say, God, 
would you shower down your grace? Would friendship, would friendship blossom and flourish? God, we pray as we um, receive these love language uh, questionnaires that we'd be able to put them into language, into practice, that you would teach us to love one another. God, we pray as we perhaps share it in the workplace or at school with other parents or wherever you lead us. God, I, I pray that people would see the way we love one another and how intentional we are about sharing your love. That they'd know that we are your disciples. As they look at our friendships, as they look at our marriages, we pray that they'd see your fingerprints all over this. And everyone present said, Amen. Amen.